human good and human flourishing and the good and the flourishing of biodiversity are entangled and interdependent and they're not in competition with each other. Where the time for incrementalism is over, people need to get involved and there is a space for you to get involved if you want to. It's a very bold government that would embrace the arguments for degrowth or steady state economy because growth is seen as the engine of progress, the means of avoiding recession. You're listening to the SEI podcast series brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening, everyone. I'd like to begin, as we always do, by acknowledging that the University of Sydney's Camperdown campus, where the Sydney Environment Institute is located, is on the unceded Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation. I myself am joining from Gadigal and Wonga lands and would like to acknowledge and pay respects to elders and the knowledge that they hold and share about this place. I'd also like to note that along with that acknowledgement of place and people, I want to express my personal support for the Uluru Statement from the Heart and its call for a First Nations voice to Parliament and processes for both truth-telling and treaty development. Voice and truth-telling are particularly important to the topic we'll be discussing tonight, so I'm sure we'll come back to that in the discussion. Um, In the meantime, I'm happy for folks to acknowledge the lands that you're all joining from in the chat. Thank you all for joining us this evening for this event on reimagining environmental responsibility after the State of Environment Report, hosted, of course, by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney, a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. I'm David Schlossberg, a professor of environmental politics and the director of the Sydney Environment Institute. So after being suppressed for seven months by the former government and yet another of its many derelictions of its duties, the 2021 State of the Environment Report was finally released last month. It's not a coincidence that the suppression of the report came hand in hand with the ongoing suppression of democratic and civil society attempts to bring attention to the dire state of the environment and the corruption and industry capture uh, of the government. So remember, over the last few years, in addition to decimating environments, governments across the country have also been criminalizing environmental protest and attacking the ability of charities and civil society organizations to raise funds and awareness. And one of the things that we'll discuss tonight is how the destruction of the environment does go hand in hand with this decimation of democratic processes, as well as the ongoing dismissal and disempowerment of indigenous communities and knowledges. I do really encourage people to read the State of Environment Report or to explore the related website. They are genuinely comprehensive, definitive, honest, and clear. Uh, And I want to note how proud we are here at the University of Sydney that one of the lead authors, uh, Emma Johnston, is our new Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research uh, and our boss at the moment. So in short, and not surprisingly, the state of Australia's environment is dire. As the overview states, uh, the state and trend of the environment in of Australia are poor and deteriorating as a result of increasing pressures from climate change, habitat loss, invasive species, pollution and resource extraction. Changing environmental conditions means that many species and ecosystems are increasingly threatened. Multiple pressures create cumulative impacts that amplify threats to our environment 
and abrupt changes in ecological systems have been recorded in the past five years. So those abrupt changes in our lived experience, of course, in the last five years since the previous report, demanded new chapters, in particular on climate change and extreme events. Now, the tone of the report is dire, but it is also reparative. And it's that dual tone that we want to take to replicate and to expand on here in the next hour. So it's crucial to note, as we often see with climate change, that the authors of the state of uh, Australia's environment note that, quote, immediate action with innovative management and collaboration can turn things around. So again, from the report, quote, Australian individuals, communities, non-governmental organizations and businesses are engaging with nature and supporting biodiversity and heritage. Successful on-ground actions include the work of Indigenous rangers, citizen science and restoration actions at many scales, providing opportunities that deliver benefits for people and country. Urban planners and governments are recognizing the need for change and a more collaborative whole-of-system approach with place-based outcomes that can build greater resilience and regenerate our urban areas. Now, one of the key things that the report lays out is the importance of engagement with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledges of country in this process of responding to the current situation. So in line with the approach and the tone of the report itself, we want to do two things in this discussion this evening. So on the one hand, the panel will focus on uh, and explore the legal and political, economic and ideological constraints that got us here. Um, but on the other hand, we'll also discuss the ways forward to ensure meaningful uh, and substantive environmental protection. So we'll focus on creative ways to reshape the conceptual, political and economic relations with each other and the environment as part of the necessary response to the report. So we do want to set a tone of possibility rather than pessimism. Um, we are in a moment uh, of Australian history where public opinion and the change of government have made the prospect of real change possible. We're in a position to make that change. Um, so let's get to the whys and hows uh, with our expert panel. So the way this is going to work tonight is I'll ask each of our panelists questions about how we got to our current state. We'll go around again with questions about how to move forward. We'll open then to all of you. So please feel free to submit your questions in the Q&A box uh, anytime. So we'll start with the question of how we got to where we are. And here, I do want to note that our good friend uh, and one of the world's leading environmental and climate law scholars, Professor Rosemary Lister, is ill. Uh, we wish her a speedy recovery, um, but are very sorry to miss her insights and analysis here. So I'm going to start um, uh, in Professor Lister's place uh, with Dr. Jerry Bates, who also teaches environmental law and sustainability at the University of Sydney. He's the author of Environmental Law in Australia, editor of Chief editor-in-chief of the Environment and Planning Law Journal and a former board member of the New South Wales EPA. He's currently working with the Maloon Institute on removing regulatory hurdles for land rehydration projects. So Jerry, you're first up. We've seen the report, but how did we get to where we are? Well, we got to where we are because we've failed to invest as much in natural infrastructure as we have in human infrastructure and consequently, our natural systems are, are starting to break down and they're failing us, uh, and perhaps none more so in the um, interruption to the natural water cycle that we're seeing all around the country at the moment. And I'll uh, come back to that because there are solutions to that. Um, 
importantly, and come back to that uh, when we when we come to the solutions part of the presentation. But my remit, the first remit tonight, was to speak about the federal legislation, uh, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, because along with the release of the SOE report, it was interesting that the minister took that opportunity to do two important things. And that was to indicate that she would respond to the review of that act by uh, Graham Samuels by the end of the year. And secondly, that there would be new environmental legislation uh, next year. So the question is, well, what's the problem with the current environmental legislation and why is that failing us? Uh, the last time we had a discussion about that, the appropriate legal responsibilities between states and feds was in the 1990s, and a lot's happened since then, so we really need to revisit that. Uh, at the moment, the legislation is focused on matters of national environmental significance, and the trigger is a significant impact on those things. But the, the number of matters of national environmental significance is very limited. And uh, many things that today, mm, a lot of us would agree, uh, matters of national environmental significance are not reflected in the current legislation. The SOE report, for example, talks about uh, native vegetation clearance and points out that very few native vegetation clearance activities or projects have been referred to the federal government. And the reason for that is because na uh, native vegetation clearance is not a trigger under the under the current act. The only way that native vegetation gets uh, a look in by the feds is if the clearance actually affects some other matter of national environmental significance, a very limited number of matters of national environmental significance. Uh, and if we're gonna continue with that theme, we really need to rethink what are the matters of national environmental significance. Today, we would obviously think of vegetation clearance. We'd think about the climate trigger, which has been on the uh, discussion board for, for years. And uh, the Greens are still trying to push through the federal parliament, of course. But we need to think about natural disasters. And importantly, too, we need to think about land degradation and rehydration, which, uh, from my point of view, is probably an absolute priority because without water, you can't do very much with anything else. So we need to have that conversation about you know, what's the new environmental legislation going to, to look like? The Samuel Review also importantly uh, talked about an outcomes-based approach to decision-making by the feds. At the moment, decision-making at federal and state level is very much process-based. Uh, it's just like ticking the boxes. Oh, we've we've uh, undertaken to, the, uh, to assess the criteria we're told to assess. Well, we tick that box but there's a failure to really look at the outcome that you're really pressing for in making a decision. So Samuels is quite right. We need to move to an outcomes-based approach. And that would involve as well monitoring the effects of our decisions and, uh, uh, and adapting those decisions if necessary, if those outcomes were not being produced. The second thing that I was asked to mention was uh, water, and I'll speak a lot more about that in solutions. But the, the problem we have with water, of course, is that we've overallocated water in this country dramatically, and we're now getting caught out by successive governments uh, kicking the can down the road in making difficult things. And uh, of course, climate change is exacerbating that. 
And uh, we're in a powerless situation, not just with the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, but with respect to water um, availability right across our continent. And that's a, a real uh, trigger that needs to be pulled in, in doing something about that. I think the most compelling observation about our climate policies, and everybody knows our problems with the uh, Morrison government climate policies, which are now being uh, attempted to be um, restored a little bit by the Albanese government. But the most compelling commentary I've heard on on that was the um, commentary by Professor McIntosh from the ANU about the um, integrity of the uh, climate uh, credits system that has underpinned the federal government uh, initiatives for so long. And uh, I mean, his, his was a complete dump on the integrity, uh, on the integrity of the whole process. Uh, that's something I would hope that the environment minister uh, is going to discuss with the resources minister and uh, climate change minister. And uh, that's obviously another matter that needs uh, significant attention. Great. Thanks, Jerry. Yes, of course, we've had increasing discussion of the possibility of biodiversity credits. So we might want to engage a bit more on that. But now I'd like to introduce David Morris, who is the chief executive officer of the Environmental Defenders Office. David's responsible for leading the organization to advance EDO's mission of a world where nature thrives. He oversees the strategic direction of EDO's public interest environmental law services. So, David, I guess the question for you is what has this history um, uh, meant for the ways that organizations like yours, civil society groups, uh, have engaged or been stifled uh, over the years? Uh, thanks, David, and thanks for having me. I'm uh, speaking to everyone from Awabakal Land this evening. I'd like to pay my res uh, respect to their orders past, present and emerging very quickly. Uh, well, look, I had an interesting um, introduction into the Commonwealth Government's relationship with civil society in 2013 when I took up my first civil society role as principal lawyer at the Environmental Defenders Office. And about three months after I took the position, I had a phone call from the Commonwealth saying, we're cutting your funding. And I said, well, by how much? I said, all of it. But when? Now. Uh, and I, I won't go into the um, First Nations art auctions that we ran to keep the organisation afloat during that period. But I have had cause in preparing for this to sort of reflect on what the government's relationship with civil society has been. And it really has been about trying to, I think, uh, silence civil society voices, diminish civil society voices that they can't silence, and then marginalise other important parts of civil society. And civil society, of course, I think is very important to a robust democracy. Um, it gives people who don't have another pedestal a way of giving voice and expression to their ideas about what our society should look like. Um, it enables government and business to be held to account, it provides, I think, innovative ideas, it enriches debate, and it takes away from the electoral cycle that politicians are so concerned about. And I want to start with the promise of the new government, I think, indicating a resetting of that relationship with civil society and, and with the charities movement uh, collectively. Um, but to achieve those three goals of silencing, diminishing and marginalising uh, the civil society voices, I think there's been three primary mechanisms used. Um, the first is funding cuts. And so I, I you know, have first-hand familiarity with those as, as a 
part of the C, uh, part of the EDOs who were completely cut. Um, but those EDO cuts joined a, a raft of others across civil society grants programs through the Commonwealth. Um, but they didn't just extend to civil society grants programs either. They cut deep into the heart of the um, the bureaucracy and the ability for Canberra um, and the department to handle complex issues. And of course, there was. Um, uh, an attempt and in some cases successfully uh, abolition of um, important mechanisms which the Commonwealth had uh, to combat climate change and biodiversity uh, loss. So I, I think that's the first way, the cutting of funding. The second way and the third way I think are, are easy to discuss together and they're the use of rhetoric and potential compliance mechanisms and then legislative mechanisms. We've spent a lot of time in civil society responding to really draconian first drafts of legislation that are going to be broad and encapsulate advocacy and require burdensome administrative processes for taking any kinds of donations from people outside of Australia. And I think that that is part of the uh, the method that was used, you know, you put up these uh, these pieces of legislation which would be terribly problematic for, for civil society and then civil society spends an enormous amount of time and energy responding to them. Um, and, and I think it's it's worthwhile noting that in most instances those left legislative mechanisms that were put up, they're often shrouded in something that was um, amiable and, and well supported by the public. So, you know, foreign interference in elections. Of course, most uh, reasonable-minded people say, well, we don't want to see that kind of foreign interference in our electoral processes, but when you then capture a whole bunch of unintended consequences, it becomes highly problematic. Um, cooler heads prevailed in most cases, and I think most of the legislation that went through actually wasn't too bad. But I'll talk more about, um, I think, some of the benefits that have happened through those attacks, but the establishment of groups like Hands Off Our Charities and the Australian Democracy Network, I think are real positives to come from these attacks. Um, the same cannot be said for anti-protest legislation. That has gone through Parliament. It's had bipartisan support at state levels in New South Wales, in Victoria and Tasmania. And so while I don't know that the Commonwealth has to bear too much of the responsibility for it, it is a problematic trend that we see, particularly at the state level, to, again, silence what I think is a legitimate voice uh, in, our, in our democracy, no matter how disruptive that may be. Um, the final way is, is this, this sort of rhetoric and this description or this illegitimization of these types of voices, types of voices like the EDO. There's been descriptions of our organisation as untruthful, um, as engaging in destructive attacks on legitimate business. So, you know, the obvious uh, implication there being that whatever we're doing is illegitimate. And then you see the description of uh, peaceful protest and nonviolent um, civil disobedience as, you know, stupid, selfish, people should go and get jobs, idiots, you know, really, really disrespectful types of language. Um, and, and again, I think that what it does, it attacks at the heart of what I think has long held been the idea of Australia's uh, democratic system, one in which there are many voices in public debate and through those many voices, we hopefully arrive at better outcomes. Um, certainly when we look at the state of the environment report, we're not getting great outcomes for nature right now. And so we need to re-look at that. Thanks, David. Um, and now it's my pleasure to introduce Frank Stilwell, who's Professor Emeritus in Political Economy at the University of Sydney and coordinating editor of the Journal of Australian Political Economy. Frank's books and articles have addressed prospects for a Green New Deal, political economy of inequality, and the diverse currents in political economic thought. 
So the obvious question for Frank is, what are the economic interests, ideologies, and institutions that have brought us to this current situation? Ideologies, interests, and institutions, channels through which economic factors influence uh, environmental outcomes. Uh, like three eyes through which we can see the players in, in this uh, drama. Um, the interests are perhaps the most obvious cluster, the, uh, the fossil fuel companies, uh, generally that whole constellation of business interests, profit-driven, often wedded to uh, degrading technologies based in extractive industries, uh, causing emissions that add to the problems of climate change. This is a familiar cast list. It's been admirably documented by Marion Wilkinson in Australia in her book on the Carbon Club. Perhaps less obvious, though, are the agricultural interests that have been responsible for some of the problems of biodiversity loss, alongside those, those general problems that are manifest in terms of climate change. Um, I think especially where agribusiness interests dominate, uh, I, mean, I mean, farmers in general have an interest in sustainability, of course, but it's primarily of their land. Uh, but it's how the land is managed that can be very problematic. Land clearing looms large as a, a causal factor in environmental degradation. Monoculture, too, uh, leading to biodiversity loss. And, of course, the conversion of rural land to residential and commercial purposes, often generating vast windfall gains for landowners. So it's the control, management, the profiteering from land that, and the interests associated with that that loom pretty large in, in these broader processes causing environmental decay. I only have to mention in passing the name John Barillaro to illustrate the point, because it's only a couple of years ago that he was arguing in the state parliament of New South Wales, contrary to the wishes of then Premier Gladys Berejiklian, that farmers and other rural landowners shouldn't be constrained by the need to retain habitat for koalas. Um, it was a huge uh, political furor at the time, and it, it, I think, marked the end of John Barillaro's career long before he got involved in lining up jobs for himself in New York. Uh, but the root problem here, as I've emphasised, is structural. It's the financial interests that are involved in economic activities, often extractivist in character, typically insensitive to uh, concerns about sustainability and environmental impacts. And alongside those interests are key economic ideologies. Ideologies are always many and varied, but in this connection, I think there's two that really stand out and loom as large obstacles to change. Um, the commitment to economic growth, so fundamental, so long-standing. It's a very bold government that would embrace the arguments for degrowth or steady-state economy because growth is seen as the engine of progress, the means of avoiding recession, of creating employment, jobs, incomes. Uh, but uh, taken to the extreme, of course, it, it growth can be uh, very 
degrading of, of uh, environmental uh, resources, uh, both the depletion of resources and the use of a of the environment as a receptacle for the waste products of those production processes. And of course, there's a dramatic contrast with the uh, indigenous cultures, so the, the ideas of First Nations people about land as an integral part of well-being, the emphasis on reproduction, on harmony in relationships with the land, indeed seeing land as part of the, the whole living conditions of, of the people. So that, that contrast of ideology between a capitalist extractivist ideology, growth-oriented, and a reproductive uh, ideology based upon harmonious relationship between people and nature is very uh, fundamental here. But the other ideology that's been particularly pervasive during the last four decades or so in Australia, as in many other capitalist nations, is that of neoliberalism, a belief in markets as the principal means by which we're going to achieve our economic goals. And it's led governments to engage in processes of privatisation, um, deregulation, cutting red tape, green tape too, as it's sometimes called, in order to open up more opportunities for profit making, for capital accumulation, but often with little regard to environmental uh, uh, conditions. Even neoclassical mainstream economists feel uncomfortable about this, I have to say, because their theories, though they're very pro-market in, in their general tenor, acknowledge that markets don't function well when there are externalities, uh, problems of congestion, pollution, environmental decay, because the market prices do not incorporate the environmental values. Uh, but then thirdly, turning from the interests and the ideologies that have got us to where we are now, there's that question of the institutions. And here too, there's a tension. The, the corporate institutions in general have an interest in uh, perpetuating the status quo, deepening the, the problems in many respects. But our, our democratic institutions, the institutions of government, open up the possibility of more social control, a more balanced set of criteria being used to judge uh, what is good, what is sustainable, what, what, what is of lasting benefit. Uh, and of course, as you said in your introduction, David, the, the change of government in Australia uh, is one that's given many people considerable hope that the democratic institutions can now start to deliver the goods, particularly with, with a Labor government in power, with the uh, hopefully uh, cooperative relationships between uh, it and Greens and Teals. It remains to be seen what the outcomes will be, but here at least is uh, an opportunity uh, for progress. But before we get back to the, the reconstructive side, let's turn to um, our final panel panel member, Professor uh, Danny Salamayar, uh, who's Professor of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Sydney and Deputy Director Academic of the Sydney Environment Institute. With her multi-species community, Danny lived through the 2019-2020 bushfires, writing in the face of their experience of the killing of everything, uh, which she calls omnicide. Um, so, Danny, 
uh, we've heard about legal and economic frameworks, of course, uh, as expressions of ethical frameworks um, or other dominant ways of making sense of the world. So how would you describe more broadly the ethical frameworks that underpin the kinds of laws and policies and practices that affect biodiversity? In Australia. Thanks, David. And I want to acknowledge that I'm on the unceded land of the Dharawal people and pay my respects to elders past and present and to thank them for the care of the multi-species relations that allow us to survive and thrive. And with that, to acknowledge that this big picture of a transformation of principles which comes through in the report I think is very much owing to the central role that Indigenous co-authors played and really I I think we need to to see the centrality of this uh, challenge to a worldview in the way that we think about biodiversity protection. So I would point to four entwined principles, human exceptionalism, extractivism, atomism, and econometric utilitarianism. Uh, So by human exceptionalism, what I mean is this very taken-for-granted view that humans and humans alone, or more accurately, certain humans, ought to be treated in ways that respect our integrity and that protect our flourishing and correlatively everything, and it is everything, not everyone else, is outside the circle of moral obligation. And that view is underpinned by a whole litany of justifications for why humans are superior, that we're made in the image of God, that we have language, that we have reason and so on. Um, And that is what justifies us alone having moral considerability or in contemporary parlance having rights. Hand in hand with this human exceptionalist ideology is uh, extractivism and understanding that everything in the world other than humans is rightfully treated as resource for humans to use to satisfy their needs or increasingly their desires. And I should add that this distribution of who is on the side of resource and who is on the side of those who have a right to use resources also cuts through humanity itself. So there are some humans who in this extractivist mindset and institutional framework have not been considered fully human because they don't have the right type of reason or the right relationship with property. And of course, Indigenous peoples have historically and continue to be placed on the wrong side of that divide. Now, those two principles of human exceptionalism and extractivism go hand in hand. They're co-constitutive because the claim that humans have moral rights is almost always undergirded by an argument about what everything else doesn't have, that animals or plants or the earth lack. That's this special je ne sais quoi that humans alone have that gives us this special status. And I just want to read a quote from um, from Immanuel Kant, the kind of the esteemed philosopher of the Enlightenment that I think captures this so well. He writes that man obtained his status as a moral agent when he said to the sheep, the pelt that you bear was given to you by nature, not for yourself, but for me. So this notion that that everything was created for humans to use. 
Atomism, the third principle, is the view that the basic unit of being morally but also in terms of the capacity to persist or thrive or survive is the individual and that systems or relationships or ecologies are derivative of individuals. So atomism, of course, plays out in biodiversity law and policy in very concrete ways in the way that the object of concern, and we see this in the EPBC, is this atomized bit of biodiversity, a species or a parcel of land or a portion of the river. And that atomistic view undermines the very possibility of biodiversity protection because one of the fundamental features of biodiversity is that the well-being of these abstracted individuals is always dependent on the well-being and functioning of the ecological holes within which they exist. Atomism also plays out in the way that we think about responsibility. And I just want to mention this briefly. There's just such a graphic example in the recent Sharma case when the minister was arguing that the reason that she couldn't be held responsible for for future emissions and their impacts on young people in this case was because the decision that she made about an extraction at this moment in approving a coal mine, that there were all of these other decisions and actions that came together to produce the outcome of a climate-changed world. And so this very atomized understanding of responsibility also comes on the other side. And finally, econometric utilitarianism, and this speaks to what Frank was saying, is the view that protecting beings other than humans can be measured in the narrowest economic terms. And what that results in is that their interests, their flourishing is always discounted. And to go back to what Jerry said in terms of looking at a results-based analysis of the EPBC, what we've ended up with is almost every one of the ministerial decisions under the EPBC, irrespective of the impact on biodiversity, has come down on the side of economic development. Thanks, Danny. So as promised, um, we do want to cover some possible responses and some more reconstructive advice. I think it's really important here, though, to know there is much to critique. Um, there has been much to critique uh, over the last few years. Um, and one of the things that we're trying to lay out here is this need to think beyond just changes to specific regulatory frameworks. So we'll talk about that. But there are some needs to address some political and cultural and economic uh, and really philosophical contexts uh, that we find ourselves in as well. But maybe just some quick um, two-minute responses from everyone um, to this more reconstructive uh, question. So I do want to ask, um, maybe we'll start uh, with Danny here, um, to come back about this sort of broad ethical framework or understanding of the world. Um, what do you think um, is, is necessary to really address the biodiversity crisis? Um, okay, I'll be really quick because I do want to leave time for people to ask questions. So really we could just articulate four principles which are the inverse of the ones that I articulated. So in place of exceptionalism and ethical framework where we understand that human and more than human well-being are entangled in place of extractivism uh, an understanding of the sanctity of all life and that we can't use the world or the earth as resource for our well-being because our well-being is always entangled with the well-being of earth um, and earth beings. 
uh, in place of atomism, a recognition of the primacy of relationships, that relationships and ecological systems come first. And this has very concrete implications for something like the EPBC Act. So you can't say, well, we're going to clear you know, uh, 10,000 or a million acres of land, but we're going to give, you know, 150 acres here and 150 acres there. That's just not the way in which systems work. And, of course, in place of economic econometric utilitarianism, a much more capacious understanding of value. Just, you know, I think they come together in what we think of as multi-species justice as a framework. It's really important to understand that when we talk about multi-species justice, we don't mean human justice plus animal justice plus plant justice plus soil justice. That is still a utilitarian and atomistic worldview, which is going to end up with discounting the interests of the more than human. So the fundamental shift has to be an understanding, and this is not an esoteric point. We have seen this with the effect of COVID, which, you know, is pretty pretty certain to be, and the future pandemics will definitely be an outcome of encroachment on environments and the shifts that are going to happen in animal habitats because of climate change. The basic fundamental transformation has to be to, to, to understand that human good and human flourishing and the good and the flourishing of biodiversity are entangled and interdependent and they're not in competition with each other. Right. Thanks, Danny. And, and to turn to Frank, um, what's the prospect of a paradigm shift like that in the economic sphere? So what kind of possible solutions and paths to progress do you see? Like, like Danny, I think you can see the solutions as the inverse of the problem. So if it's an ideology of dominant economic growth that's part of the problem, the solution has to lie in moving towards a more steady state economy. Well, uh, eventually, I think that's right, but we have to start in the here and now, and it's very hard to imagine that uh, what amounts to effectively a calling for the end of capitalism could possibly be a precondition for making progress in this territory. So we've got to look at uh, some ways in which we can accept the, the problems uh, associated with economic growth, but decouple it from environmental impacts. Uh, that's what I why I'm attracted to the notion of a Green New Deal, because at least it's a pragmatic way of operating in the here and now, dealing with capitalist interests, but trying to change the behaviour so that we get more ecologically sustainable outcomes. Now, that shift can be driven by governments. Uh, indeed, I think it has to be because individuals don't have the power, the authority to bring about regulatory change, tax changes. Sure, people can change their own patterns of consumption towards more ecologically sustainable patterns, and I thoroughly encourage that. But it's only when governments get in to the business of changing the dominant ideas and practices that drive our economic arrangements that we're going to make a difference. So uh, the principles of a circular economy embodied in a Green New Deal 
or one might call it in the Australian context, a Labour Green Deal, uh, could be a, a framework for a significant change of direction. And, of course, that can also link up with other concerns. The concern for the voice and engagement with Indigenous peoples can take place within the framework of such a programme. After all, who's got better environmental sustainability credentials than the Indigenous Australian people who lived in this continent for 60,000 years odd uh, sustainably? Um, so I think there are glimmers for hope down these roads, particularly if they become part of a broader reform agenda, uh, not just a transition, but a just transition. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks, Frank. Um, Jerry, let me turn to you now. Um, uh, maybe some specifics. What, what about some alternatives for governance, for regulatory frameworks, for um, changes to um, the PC Act? Well, uh, I think the most important priority is to fix the broken water and to rethink our attitudes to environmental regulation, including the EPBCA, to do that. We can make uh, rehydration of land uh, a matter of national environmental significance. But in in terms of regulation, um, regulation gets in the way of a lot of beneficial impacts that landowners want to, beneficial projects uh, that landowners want to carry out on their land. So the the law at the moment treats beneficial projects in the same way as it treats projects that are going to have adverse impacts. And we need to completely, you know, change that sort of thinking. Um, my example with the Maloon Institute is, uh, which is a land rehydration initiative um, organization with a UN sustainability award, is that in order to rehydrate uh, the Maloon catchment, we had to spend $350,000 uh, it took two and a half years to get government permits from seven different diff- different government agencies. And as other speakers have said, you know, uh, bureaucrats operate in silos, uh, each with their own little uh, uh, um, uh, part of the puzzle. But what we need is a holistic uh, approach to government regulation that would enable these sorts of projects to uh, proceed without the hurdles, the regulatory hurdles, the time and expense that they currently um, are enshrined in, and which simply um, are too expensive for ordinary landholders to to deal with. Uh, So, you know, those are the, uh, I think, regulation around the the water cycle. You can't do anything else without without water. Uh, you, You need water to bring back the biodiversity, replenish the soil, improved productivity, whatever it is. I think that's the starting point. Great. Thanks, Jerry. And David, finally, to you again. Um, I mean, you can answer the regulatory question, of course, but also the question to you is how do we mobilize? Um, How do we mobilize both citizens and governments? Well, I think as to Danny's point that humans are a part of and not apart from nature, one of the things I've been really uh, given hope by has been, I think, the coming together of various parts of civil society to recognise environment is not something that sits in a box over here. We're seeing increasingly responses to environmental issues from uh, human rights charities, from health charities, from international development charities who are recognising that um, nature and uh, its flourishing is a precondition to human flourishing and, and we are part of it. And so 
NGOs, civil society in this space is no longer just the domain of the Australian Conservation Foundations of the world. We've got um, great new organisations that have popped up and, you know, Original Power being a fantastic First Nations one, the First Nations Clean Energy Network that's recently been established, fantastic. Um, Other um, civil society organisations like Market Forces and ACCR, which are looking at changing corporate behaviour and engaging with people who are engaging with those corporates, those types of things I think are really shifting things and have shifted things far more um, in the face of uh, a government that hasn't wanted to than direct approaches to government. My hope now is that all of those organisations that have cropped up over the last decade um, and are working really collaboratively, I think, in large part because of the challenge we've faced, now get to have a more receptive government along with business that knows they need to move to. Um, You know, I think my, my last point to all the audience would be the time for incrementalism is over. Uh, people need to get involved and there is a space for you to get involved if you want to. Um, social movements have, and, and, you know, look at our last election and the and the rise of teal independent candidates and community-based independent candidates. Social movements have historically been a major force in the types of broad-scale changes. In fact, pretty well all of the broad-scale changes that we've needed to see. Uh, that won't be any different in terms of addressing um, crises that face our climate and nature. So um, get involved. There are lots of opportunities to. Great. Thanks, David. So now we'll do, we've got a few minutes left, so maybe we'll turn to a quick fire Q&A. So how do we address the influence of vested interests in the development of effective policy to protect the environment and the approval of projects that damage the environment and climate? I mean, we really are in the space right now um, where there is a possibility. So how do we address what we know is coming, that pressure uh, by vested interests uh, against the kinds of reforms that the report has asked for? Who wants to take that on? I'll, I'll, I'll jump into the vacuum here. It, it, it's a really big one. Uh, there's a, a very nice book written by Lindy Edwards, uh, 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 a Canberra-based uh, political scientist on corporate power and how it's uh, invaded uh, it, the government, uh, sort of a state capture process. Certainly that has to be exposed and it has to be challenged uh, if we're to have more effective uh, way forward. So that will be top of my agenda is uh, exposing and uh, trying to limit state capture that has been such a major source of uh, uh, problems in in getting reforms in the past. Can I just hop in and link that with what David was saying? Because if we think about government as responding to a range of pressures and there have been enormous pressures from uh, vested interest groups in industry, but on the other side is citizen pressure. And I think it's absolutely remarkable that these uh, protest laws have gone through very recently in New South Wales and Victoria without so much as a peep from beyond those with a particular interest. And I think really, you know, like David said, there have to be counter pressures from civil society. And, you know, this is in the interest of all human beings that we deal with biodiversity and climate crises. And so at the same time as trying to undermine the pressure of particular interest groups, I think to increase the pressure from civil society groups and really have broad coalitions um, across interest groups uh, to to give a countervailing pressure on government. 
So I think this is this is one of the key questions. And one one of the questions here is um, whether we're aware of any groups or movements that are currently working towards communicating these kinds of issues or restructures needed. Um, I feel as if the frustration is widely felt in the field, but there's been little change in the legislative landscape. So I guess the question really is, how, so what are the efforts out there? We do have this opportunity now. There is a different government. There are teals, there are greens, um, uh, you know, with the balance of power in Senate. So what are the options uh, for folks who want to get involved? What are the avenues there? David? Look, I, I can probably only speak for the Environmental Defender's Office, but there's been a lot of work uh, by our team behind the scenes, both to engage with the new government, but also to engage with um, the new crossbench. Um, there's been, you know, th- th- there's actually this enormous amount of work that has been done by Places You Love Alliance and others to look at what, uh, you know, go, go back to the um, Australia, the appeal group, um, which Jerry might have been involved in, the Australian Panel of Experts for Environmental Law, that looked at what a kind of paradigm shift in our environmental legislative frameworks would look like. I think the worry for me is that the government of the day is understandably looking for things that can bring together this broad coalition of business, environment, you know, where's the happy ground that we can tread which doesn't offend anyone and kind of no one gets exactly what they want but no one hates it either. But I think we're at the, pro- the problem with that is you look at the state of the environment report, we don't have time left to address these issues in a way that is going to uh, placate everyone to the point of silence. So I think there is going to need to be a real lift from people who are um, concerned about the trajectory of our uh, environment to say the time for appeasing economic interests and prioritising those voices above uh, longer term perhaps voices of, uh, of, of sustainability needs to, needs to change and, and that does require pressure. It absolutely requires pressure. So uh, I come back to my point about getting involved. We'll see great creativity, I think, from civil society. We'll see creativity in lawsuits. We'll see creativity in uh, legislative ideas. But um, unless those things are given a a platform for political will, they won't succeed. But the makeup of this parliament provides a huge opportunity, I think. Yeah, thanks. I guess, and Melissa Haswell, uh, at the end of the questions, asked the same question, how do we deal with the need for speed? Um, the the window on both biodiversity and climate is closing fast. Any ideas for how we accelerate these changes? I guess, Jerry, um, you know, it, just in the legal realm and in, in this potential opening uh, around um uh, around regulation, is there <laughs> is there any opportunity to move quickly uh on uh, the kinds of changes that we've been speaking of tonight. The problem with regulation is that uh, it's the, the field is populated by bureaucrats um, for whom moving quickly is not uh, uh, the usual sort of thing. I mean, we are um, Google Google the Maloon Institute, everyone, if you're really interested in how to make a change um, to bring water back to landscapes and benefit biodiversity and soil health. Um, we're working uh, with the Department of Planning, uh, who, which has uh, recognised the relevance of, of, of the necessity to rehydrate the landscape. And Maloon's all about rehydrating the national landscape. But um, it's, it's frustratingly slow getting anything done through a government agency, and they're in charge of regulation. So we're trying to move as quickly as we can. We're trying to various things to sort of quicken the process, um, but it is it is frustratingly so. Uh, and I've said to the 
the the, the planning department myself. You know, we don't have a, a great window of, of time here. We've got to actually get on with it before the window closes. And uh, we're moving at snail's pace to um, put in place or remove the hurdles that are, that are preventing private landowners doing beneficial works on their own land. So one of the other things that's coming up in the questions, I'm not going to read all of them, but one of the other things that's coming up uh, are questions about um, uh, other regulations, other issues, fossil fuels, um, fuel emission standards, uh, electric vehicles, and the, and the rest. So I guess the, the general question here um, would be um, beyond, we know the environment minister's focus uh, on the act and on a response to the Samuel review, but um, there are obviously a number of other issues that need to be dealt with simultaneously in order to deal with this question of speed. And I guess my question then, or the way to phrase this is what's the strategy then? Um, how do you approach this sort of multifaceted uh, problem, which the report brings up in great detail, um, the number of issues that need to be addressed, not just a single act? Yeah, I mean, I'll be I'll I'll be bold and jump in. I mean, the Albanese government part of their promise was to change the way in which Parliament runs to have a much more collaborative, uh, a less internecine uh, Parliament. But that can also apply to the way in which government runs itself. I mean, we know this has been one of the problems that's haunted Indigenous rights in this country and environmental rights in this country is that the siloing of the policymaking process makes it very difficult to understand the ecological uh, nature of the pathologies and also the ecological nature of the solutions. So, you know, this government also has the opportunity to really rethink the, the policymaking process, the conversations that need to happen between ministers, between departments, and between the, the three levels of government as well, which is something that Jerry brought up in his uh, in his opening remarks. So if we're talking about ecological thinking in relation to the environment, we also need ecological thinking in relation to policy making. And that means changing the way in which, you know, who talks to who and who's around the table when policy is being made, including also civil society actors and the people who are directly affected. I might just add one final thing, which is, and I'm not necessarily, I'm going to sit very much on the fence in this space, but I think that there is this growing momentum behind the idea that business and corporate actors need to value nature and see it as the most fundamental form of capital. And I think it's an interesting space because I think there's a lot of risk associated with it, but I think in terms of moving at pace and speed and removing uh, the problems that Jerry's articulated well with bureaucracy, business doesn't necessarily face those same challenges in terms of moving fast. There are lots of other challenges, but I do see it as a real space for opportunities Opportunity in terms of moving with speed. Any final comments from the crew here? Any last bits of advice to our audience or to the government for that matter? We've got about a minute for that. Well, if, if, if I could jump in first, David, uh, I mean, I'd simply sum it up by saying there's no silver bullet here. There's no one thing that's going to make 
the, the difference, make a sustainable economy, society, one that's respectful of alternative cultures, uh, First Nations commitments to uh, sustainability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're all important. Yes, we can have even some uh, traditional economic uh, tools in, in, in the solution package. Uh, carbon taxes, I, I think very much better than emissions trading system because they send a clearer signal about what is bad behaviour and uh, the way in which it should be discouraged. Regulatory processes, government engagement in developing industry policies to change the, and, and make a transition from sunset to sunrise industries based on renewable technologies, renewable energy sources, and so, so forth. All of these things, are, I mean, Everything but the kitchen sink, uh, you know, needs to change, and it all can contribute, uh, albeit with with frictions between the advocates of the different approaches, the people who are warning about the downside of this, that, and the other. But look, I mean, there, there is no silver bullet, so so let's encourage all forms of activism that, that and and policy action that are geared, in broadly speaking, the right direction. Yeah, thanks, Frank. I think one of the responses to that question about Indigenous voice and having a seat at the table uh, is something that we we talked about just before this started when one of the questions that came along uh, before, uh, you know, in, in the registration was what's missing from the report? And David's response to that was, well, the point is there's a lot more in this report than we saw in the last report just a few years ago. And one of those is Indigenous voice. Um, it's in every chapter. It's not just sort of ghettoized into a chapter at the end. The voice is there throughout. So I think, um, you know, respect to the group um, that has done this environment report um, for doing that. That's a radical change. Um, that is that seat. I mean, literally the seat at the table and the pen in hand, along with other co-authors uh, in creating that report. And I think the thing to do is to keep that going uh, in the changes, in the, all the discussions around changes and the implementation uh, of responses to that report. So with that, um, I'm going to have to draw this um, to a close. I do want to thank the panel. Uh, I do want to thank uh, Evie Wright, who is our um, multi-talented uh, uh, director of events uh, at SCI. Um, thanks to all of you for joining us and for your questions. Please stay up to date with SCI's events, where much more of this um, will be discussed. And thanks uh, to everyone for attending. We'll see you all soon.